all of us. So I'm sure you will remember that in the teachings of the Buddha, as recorded in the Pali Canon, among the 40 methods that the Buddha taught for developing shamatha and in moving into the dhyanas, uh, that the one, the only one actually, that he recommended for people who had a strong proclivity or tendency for obsessive compulsive ideation, or vikalpa in Sanskrit, uh, the only one was mindfulness of breathing. You know, there are other, some people are hot-tempered types, some people are lust, lusty types, so there was a whole personality typology that the Buddha dealt with, that he discussed, and for different personality types, and he recommended different types of shamatha methods. So it was very, kind of very therapeutic. Uh, but, as I mentioned, for those who just tend to have a lot of proliferation of just a lot of thoughts coming up, obsessively and compulsively, then mindfulness of breathing, what he, what he recommended. And it would seem there must have been a fair number of people, because that's the method he taught more than any, any other method of meditation for all of the years that he, that he taught. According to the Pali Canon, it is in that context. And so I've mentioned in my book, The Attention Revolution, that one possible strategy that one might experiment with, just see how it goes, is within the nine stages of shamatha, which are not found in the Pali Canon, but are found in the, in the Mahayana, and then, of course, in the Mahayana commentaries, that one might try out, uh, might, focusing on mindfulness of breathing for the first four stages, until coarse excitation has been transcended. So, in other words, you're, you're no longer completely losing your object for half an hour, 45 minutes, maybe an, even an hour. You're really in the flow. Flow. So you have noise, you have static, you have chatter that will actually pull you a bit, but never pull you so far off experientially from your own first-person perspective that you've completely forgotten your meditative object. Right? So I know all that is redundant, but I wanted to just, as a reminder, point that out. That is a possibility. Uh, what I'd like to do now is to go back yet further right to the Buddha's core teachings on this Anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, and that is breathing in long, one notes I breathe in long, breathing out long, one notes I breathe out long. Um, I'd like to spend this session going back to that one. Just the first four. First of the four verses or lines in his four line, four line, uh, yeah, his, his tetrad of instructions on mindfulness of breathing. Go back to that first one. With this point, I think I'll have the session be silent. Okay, so you can really be single-pointed, not have to multitask back and forth between the practice and listening to me. So all of this is redundant, but briefly so. And that is, as, we, as you slip into the meditation, you might, do, you might do a bit of guru yoga first, if you find that helpful. It certainly can give great blessing to the practice. But however you wish to begin it, uh, for as long as you sense that your in-and-out breath is relatively long, in other words, relatively normal, uh, fairly long, but also maybe vacillating. Sometimes you have some short ones and then long ones and a really long out-breath and then maybe a pause and a short and so forth. When it's kind of shifting around, shifting around, sometimes long, sometimes short and so forth, for as long as that's happening, then I would suggest, again, big emphasis on two things, actually. Suffer your respiration in its natural rhythm. And that is really finesse that. Get real subtlety of completely relinquishing all control over the breath. Some of you have had has a real good experience of this now, and it's all, and when you report it, it's all with this with a smile. I finally had the experience of just the body breathing, and I had nothing to do with it, and it was so soothing and so calming. It was like I wasn't involved at all. It was almost like I was observing somebody else's body breathing. And the sense of release, sense of relaxation, sense of wow, that was nice. Now I get it. You know? So there is something to get there. And you get it by just releasing subtler and subtler and subtler any kind of preference, control, any type of pulling in, especially of the inhalation, and just let it utterly flow of its own accord. Now, again, as long as the, there's its long breath or intermittent long and short, but it's varying, but generally long, then just big emphasis on relaxation and, of course, without spacing out. Right? At some point, and a number of you have reported this also, that all the, the long breath and also the vacillations or the variations of the breath, long, short, some long, long, and then short, and the long, 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 and then etc., working itself out, working its kinks out, so to speak, uh, that 
a number of you reported, then, you know, in various ways it can happen. It can happen all of a sudden or kind of incrementally. You slip into kind of a very supple, a very subtle, very gentle, very smooth and, and shallow breath, which means now relatively short. And then that continues. Now it kind of, it, that kind of continues on in flow. And you're not, you're not taking much oxygen in, but you've got a nice sinusoidal wave going now. It's kind of the, the it's short in, short out. It's smooth, it's running, it's flowing. And at that point, then you really shift gears, so to speak, mentally. Say, okay, now it's time to attend to the whole body. And that is, you can be attending to the whole vibrational field from the first person perspective of your body, vibrational field and the fluctuations within the field throughout the entire body, corresponding to in-breath, out-breath. Or, that's certainly that was the Sangha, he said the whole body, or Buddha Gosa, I mean, they're both compatible. Buddha Gosa saying the whole body of the breath. So for these shallow in-breath, out-breath, you're just there, like riding, riding, like riding a stallion who's in, in a gallop. It's a kind of a nice rhythm, rocking sensation back and forth, back and forth. I don't ride horses, so I hope I'm doing this correctly. <laughs> but kind of a rhythm where you're just kind of flowing with the horse. But there's a real motion there. It's not flying. It is a, a gallop. Uh, a final point on that, and that is, I've seen in a number of meditation manuals in the Tibetan tradition now, they'll say, now, settle your respiration. It is very explicit. I didn't make that one up. Settle your respiration. Now, here's something I have not said before. As they are preparing to go into the main practice, okay, this is a preliminary. Settle your respiration so it's very gentle. Ready for the new part? Because I know everything I've said is mostly uh, repetition. Here's the new part. So you can't hear the breath. So you can't hear the breath. Very gentle, shallow, soft, but no sense that you're repressing or inhibiting the breath in any way. Your body just doesn't need much air. But now it's gone so subtle, you can't hear it. Okay. When you get to that point, okay, you may continue in mindfulness of breathing and simply continue on that trajectory. If it works, you may not want to fix it. But another possibility is, if you're there, now do anything you like. You may shift into settling the mind in its natural state, or taking the mind as a path, as they say. You know, it could really go well now, because you're not going to be so prone to being utterly carried away by thoughts. When the breath is deep, this is corresponding to a very coarse level of mind. And that means probably a lot of turbulence, a lot of activity, a lot of excitation that's just going to throw you every which way. Right? And so you might go there, or when you get into that nice, subtle, subtle breathing, shallow breathing, and so soft, so low in volume that you, can, you can't even hear it, then you might go into awareness of awareness. Just then release any deliberate attention given to the breath, and just say, now I'm going to be single-pointed. Now prior to that point, since we are in a Dzogchen retreat, and we're moving into dream yoga this afternoon, then I would suggest, really try this. For a number of you, I know it's worked quite well. This, this, um, this method, uh, very kind of a Dzogchen method, of not deliberately focusing your attention from here to there. Okay, I will now focus on my body. Okay, where's my... Okay, there's my body. And I'm going to now focus on my sensations, like you're really targeting it. You don't need to do that. Again, it rises up to meet you. Or targeting the rise and fall of the abdomen. There's nothing wrong with that. But, but why not give it a rest? Or targeting the sensations of the nostrils. Don't target anything. Just let your awareness rest in its own nature. And unless you're already very, very deep in samadhi, like stage 8 or 9, you will be aware of the fluctuations in the field of your body, because they rise up to meet you. you know? They just rise up to meet you, kind of like, like a blanket around you. You feel it. Blanket, a hug, whatever you like, but they're rising up to meet you. So without deliberately giving any attention, if somebody just came over and just gave you a gentle hug periodically, you wouldn't have to say, oh, you're hugging me. You'd just be aware, oh, you're being gently hugged. That's it. I mean, it's kind of like, well, that, that came up, you know. So like that, you're being gently hugged. You know, the, the reverberation, the fluctuation of the field, the somatic field, is just rising, falling, rising and falling. And without deliberately targeting, it just simply comes into, emerges into the space of your awareness. And unless you deliberately withdraw from it, 
it'll be quite evident. Okay? Want to try that? Okay? All of this is really to get over the initial kind of in surface terminology, to get through the break. And that's when the surfer's paddling out through the waves and getting beaten and beaten and beaten until finally gets beyond the break. And now just riding, rising gently, gently. It's a pretty, pretty cool analogy, actually. Because right, you're, beyond the, you're beyond the break, beyond the actual waves crashing or curling and crashing. So then you're just out where the swell is. And the swell is much subtler than a wave crashing down on you. right? Much subtler. And you're waiting there, and then, then you just... Maybe you just like hanging out there. And, you know, I've, I've seen guys in Santa Barbara, they just get out there and hang out and chat. You know, it's kind of fun. You're in the ocean, got some fellow surfer dudes, you know, so you can hang out and not really worry about catching a wave. I think I've said everything needed to be about that. So let's go right in now. Let's have a silent session. Practice as you will. So this afternoon we'll begin the teachings, the oral transmission on the next bardo. But as a, a transition to that transition, I'd like to just make this extremely brief reference to the citation, I think a very moving citation from the Maha Parinibbana Sutta from the Pali Canon that I read this morning, Be an Island Unto Yourself and so forth, very well-known sutta. Um, from the Pali Canon and focuses really on the core of the Pashana practice uh, for the whole Pali Canon, the four applications of mindfulness. What's remarkable here, known to I think all good scholars of, of Indian Buddhism, is that there's another Maha Parinirvana Sutra. Mahapadinirvana Sutra, Sutra, a Sanskrit Sutra, a Mahayana Sutra. And it's very, very different from the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. It's not just Nibbana versus Nirvana, it's a lot different, very different. Uh, and so I'll just recite, and what it is fundamentally about, the central theme of this Mahaparinibbana Sutra, uh, which is, of course, it's about the Buddha's final passing away. The central theme, the overwhelming theme for the entire discourse is. Buddha nature. Buddha nature. Uh, so, just a very brief citation from that. And a couple of comments by it, and then we'll get to the next passages of our text. So here's a statement attributed to the Buddha in this sutra. Just as people say, great, when things are gained by the working together of many causal relations, so do things stand with nirvana. As it can be gained by the interaction of many causal relations, we say, great. And why do we say, great nirvana? As there is the great self, we speak of great nirvana. As nirvana is selflessness and great sovereignty, and that is great freedom from all restrictions, unlimited autonomy, the ability to do as one wills, as nirvana is selflessness and great sovereignty, we speak of the great self. So now nirvana is referred to as Atman, Maha Atman, the great self. The great self. Quite remarkable, isn't it? On the one hand, he's saying it's selfless, but then it's the great self. Well, that is the interface between the first turning of Wheel of Dharma, even the second turning of Wheel of Dharma, uh, the emptiness of inherent nature of the self, emptiness of inherent nature of all phenomena. But now in this third turning of, turn, third turning of the Wheel of Dharma, and there are different interpretations of that, but I'm giving the Dzogchen interpretation, the third turning of Wheel of Dharma is not really primarily about Chittamatra. That's a Galupa take on it. It has its own validity. It's another perspective. But the Dzogchen, the Nyingma perspective, on the third turning of the Wheel of Dharma, is the central theme of that whole matrix of teachings, is the Tathagatagarbha, the Buddha nature. Right? The central theme of the second turning of the Wheel of Dharma is the great perfection of wisdom, the teachings on emptiness and dependent origination. And then the central theme, of course, for the first turning is the Four Noble Truths. So now, Nirvana is 
regarded as the great self. I remember years ago, about, oh, well, yeah, close to 30 years ago, or 20 years, something, 20 some years ago, I was reading a Sangha's commentary to the Uttara Tantra, the Ratnagotra Vipaga, and something quite remarkable there, just turning on its head characteristics of phenomena that are highlighted in the Pali Canon in the verse turning of Wheel of Dharma. And that is, for example, there's a meditation very common in, in the early these, element, these foundational teachings, and that is meditating on impurity. Impurity. Impurity of your own body, and then if you are sexually attracted to anybody, with your, whatever your sexual preference is, if you have really a lot of lust, craving, arriving towards somebody else's body, then you just strip it down, you know, down to the flesh, the, the sinews, the pus, the blood, the lymph, the organs, and brain tissue, and feces, and toenails, toe jam, all the way down until, I mean, you just kind of rub your nose in it. You rub your nose in it. I was raised partly on a ranch when I was a kid, and if a, if a dog on the ranch killed a chicken, you know what you have to do with that dog? You get the chicken that the dog killed, and you tie it around its neck and leave it there. Boy, that dog never wants to touch a chicken again. This kind of rotting, decaying chicken hanging around its neck, it really works. You know? So if you're really fixated on somebody, <laughs> <laughs> you can either go the, deca you know, the decaying chicken route or you can just really focus on, you know, if I take off the skin, I mean, we say often, you know, Oh, you have such beautiful skin. You know, some women, some children, you know, various people, some men, I guess. But women really take care of their skin. Like, oh, this woman has such beautiful skin. Imagine you say, oh, you really like it? And she peels it off. <laughs> <laughs> do you like what's underneath? You see all the little capillaries and so forth. Do you like those too? I, I can do more. Strip that back to sinews and bones and then down to bone marrow. You know, it really takes all the fun out of dating. It really works. When I was a monk, boy, if you, want, if you did that, it really kind of nukes any kind of... If you really hold the attention, it's really hard. On one occasion, there was a gorgeous woman during the time of the Buddha. We're going to get to dream yoga, don't worry. But <laughs> these stories, some of these stories are just too good. You know? There was one, one woman, she was young, and she was just a knockout. She is so gorgeous. And the monks would see her, and it was really hard for them to keep their eyes down. You know, they, could take, you know, they could take some real lessons from some, a few people here. But she was so gorgeous. You know. And then she, she up and died. Suddenly, just some, something took her. You know. She died. Happens, you know, the best of them. So they took her out to the charnel ground, and they just left her there. And, the monk, and then I think it was the Buddha. It might have been one of his great disciples, but might have, I think it was the Buddha. said, okay, monks, now go out there and just watch for the next week. And when you first arrive, say, boy, that beautiful dead woman. The next day, not so much. And then as the days go on, kind of you're starting to retch and feel the disgust and nausea, and then the smell gets to you. And then you see the worms coming and the ants coming, crawling into the eyes, crawling into the mouth. You know, and it's like, ah. They really got over it. So that was attention upon attention. Classic teachings, monastic teachings, and equally valid for monks and nuns. It's not, it's not a thing against women's bodies. They're no dirtier than, or filthier or impure than men's body. That should go without saying. But there's one of them, but that's classic. But now what happens is, in this third turning of the will of Dharma, they say, yes, your ordinary body is impure, but the Tathataka Garva, that's really pure. This is impure, but this is pure. And then we have all conditioned phenomena are impermanent, right? These are the basic marks of existence. All conditioned phenomena are impermanent, subject to change, arising, passing, moment to moment, moment. True, but not the Tathataka Garbha. That's permanent, unchanging, immutable. Right? All phenomena that are conditioned by, influenced by mental afflictions, tainted by mental afflictions, unsatisfying, of the nature of dukkha, but not the Tathataka Garbha. That's of the very nature of eudaimonia, of sukha, of true, genuine happiness. And now the final one. And all phenomena 
are empty of self. Except the Tathagata. That's who you really are. It's quite interesting, isn't it? They take the four and then say, don't look in the wrong places. If you want purity, don't go to that really handsome guy, that beautiful young woman. Looks pure, that's just because you took a bath. It's on the surface. Just let her stand there for a while, in Phuket. Sweat starting to come, coming, coming, coming. You know, see what's it like after he hasn't t- she or he hasn't taken a bath for a while. So quite interesting that, well, that's exactly what we see here. This was classic. Nirvana is the great self. Not who you normally think you are, as a man, woman, sentient being, sub- substrate consciousness. No, not that. That's not self, not self, not self, all the way through. But when you've gone through everything that is not yourself, the one thing remaining, Nirvana, that's who you really are. Nirvana is identical to Dharmadhatu. Dharmadhatu is indivisible from primordial consciousness, Dharmakaya, Tathagatagarbha, Buddha nature. So, but to linger just a little bit, because this really is a segue to, I'm not just rambling around and finding interesting things to say. This is a transition to the next transitional process or phase, the bardo of dreaming, where we're going to see very strongly and very shortly here the dreamlike nature of all phenomena. But we left something there that was really totally unresolved, wasn't even faced, and often it doesn't happen, not even faced. And that is, well, what did the Buddha actually say? I mean, there's the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. That feels comfortable. There's the Buddha speaking to Ananda. He's speaking about four applications of mindfulness. Good, rational Buddhism, like Bertrand Russell was referring to. It's rational, it's empirical, really highlights the nature of the mind, first-person experience. And then we have this other one, and saying, well, well, if you're a metaphysical realist, and, you, and you, metaphysical realism means the Buddha really was someplace, and he really said something, and he really engaged with some people, and there's only one story, and that's the right story. Because that's what really happened, right? Just like... I mean, most, most physicists, most scientists generally, that whole story of the 13.8 billion-year-old universe, that's what really happened. Absolutely, whether we ever occurred, whether we ever thought about it, ever made any measurements at all. Well, the sun is the sun. I mean, just look at it. You think you made that one up? And the moon is the moon, and the earth is the earth, and, and black holes are black holes, and so forth. Uh, how can one doubt that they were already there before any measurements were made? So that's metaphysical realism. And then likewise, you know, history, 200,000-year-old history of Homo sapiens sapiens and back to more primitive primates and going back, back, back to dinosaurs, back, back, back to single-celled organisms. That's what really happened on planet Earth, right? That's what really happened. If you're a metaphysical realist, that was all discovered. That was already waiting to be discovered. And the scientists simply found the right measurements, the right mathematics and so forth, to discover what really happened, and they are creating a better and better, more and more thorough and accurate map of what actually, absolutely, objectively, really occurred. And it makes really good sense, and that is believed by most scientists, except for those who have the deepest insight into the nature of matter. Quantum mechanics. You know, Stephen Hawking, and I've read it, I won't, I won't read them again. Stephen Hawking, John Wheeler, Andre Linde, Anton Seilinger. You know, and they're the ones with the I mean, really, these are the cutting-edge physicists working in the fields of quantum mechanics and its implications for reality at large. What do we really know independent of measurement? And the answer is, from Anton Seininger, that's a meaningless question. Or if you just want to say nothing, that's okay. But if you posit anything, that is meaningless gibber, gibberish. So, as I said before, if you're a metaphysical realist, you've got some real problems as as a Buddhist. As a Buddhist, you got some real. As a Theravada Buddhist, you got some real problems, because that history, that history of our world with these Buddhas, when the Buddha's living, when they're twenty thousand year human lifespan, I mean that just does not compute, right? Going back earlier, maybe some millions of years, thirty thousand years, and earlier some millions of years, who knows, forty thousand years. There's just no way that can abs- just absolutely no way that's going to map onto the truly existent real picture of the universe and the evolution of life on this, on this planet. You can't kind of work it out. There is just no way to work that one out. And, the, and that's in terms of time, history. Just as a reminder, the four continents of world sectors, read the details. 
They just don't map. This is why I just was bursting into laughter when one geshe was, was trying. You know, this, this will fit. It, it, it just absolutely doesn't work at all. And so, then you're kind of stuck. And if I were in that position, then I would simply have to say, well, I just have to go with the science. The Dalai Lama said, if you have empirical evidence that refutes any Buddha's assertion, then throw out the Buddha's assertion. If metaphysical realism is true, then I just have no choice. The four, the four, the four continents and Moggallanaputta inviting the, telling the Buddha he would take some Sangha there. Either that was just complete fiction or somebody else made it up or he was just you know, profoundly mistaken. And likewise, the whole notion of the three preceding Buddhas, who pre- the pre- those who preceded the Buddha Shakyamuni. But now we're, we're segueing over to dream yoga. This is absolutely rooted in the second turning, second turning of the wheel of Dharma, the teachings on the perfection of wisdom, the notion that the Buddha was teaching the perfection of wisdom sutras on, on Vulture's Peak in Rajgir, which is a small, a large hill, a very small mountain, to millions of bodhisattvas. Okay? not possible if metaphysical realism is correct, but now let's just move on. You know, if you're totally convinced that metaphysical realism is, is correct, you can have a great time practicing the first turning of We Live Dharma and have a lot of benefit, but not Dream Yoga and not Dzogchen or any Vajrayana at all or Chittamatra or Madhyamaka. So let's move beyond. Let's, um, I won't repeat again any reasons or what have you this whole, whole notion, what's there before you make the measurement? We can say, in a manner of speaking, um, a field of potentiality. A field of potentiality. Now, Werner Heisenberg, when commenting on this, is very interesting. He's one of the greatest pioneers of quantum mechanics. He said, when you speak of a probability function, probability wave, a field of potentiality, he said, don't reify it. He actually said something, if that's not exactly the words, it's exactly the meaning, don't think that's really there. It prior to an independent of measurement. Oh, there's something there. I know it's a probabilistic, uh, a field of probability or probabilistic field. No, there isn't. It's not there. There's nothing you can point to and say, ah, there it is. It's a manner of speaking, but don't think it's really there prior to an independent of measurement. Now, on this point, there's a really interesting word in Tibetan. Really interesting. I, th- I think it's really loaded with significance. And that is, I've mentioned this term loka in Sanskrit or jikten in Tibetan. Speak of jikten tamjit, all worlds, all, all world systems, and that always means an inhabited world. A meteorite is not a loka. If it has no sentient beings on it, it's just a rock. But if, have, if you have a world like our planet, which is inhabited by sentient beings, then that's a loka. That's a loka, right? So there's one word that comes up a lot. Jikten in Tibetan, jikten tamjit, all, all inhabited worlds. And it's countless, 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 right? But there's another one that's interesting. Sipa tamjit. And sipa, I generally translate it as mundane existence. Mundane existence. But what it literally means, sipa, it means becoming, or it means possibility. Tering Andrea, It's possible. It's possible that Andrea will show up this afternoon. I don't know. He's, he's the resident meditation teacher here. It's possible he'll come. Whether he will come or not, that isn't determined yet. Maybe even he hasn't decided. But it means possible. But there's a potential for that. Or it's becoming. Maybe he's coming. He's not here yet, but it's a definite possibility because he's on his way. It's becoming. It's occurring. It hasn't become yet, but it's becoming. You know, Sipatamjit. All, be, all worlds of becoming. All worlds of potentiality. All worlds of possibility. It's quite explicit. That the real consists not only of the actual. What exists exists not only of the actual, but also of the possible. But that's in English, too. Uh, is, it, is there a possibility that Andrea will come this afternoon? Is that possibility real? Sure, as far as we know, if he's dead, then no, but I, we could come back in the bardo. But yeah, that's a possibility. Sure, he could come. Is it possible that it will rain this afternoon? Well, sure, sure in, in Phuket, in the, in, the, in the rainy season. So possibilities exist as much as actualities. That's just good English, right? It could happen, yeah. That's a, that's a definite possibility. Let's see. And then you see whether the possibility or the potentiality for it, or the likelihood of it, is there a real likelihood? Is there a real likelihood that such and such will happen? You say, yeah, that means that likelihood exists. And then it becomes actual. Oh, now it's no longer a likelihood. It happened. 
So it's that similar theme. That's what I'm reading into it, but I don't think I'm reading between the lines very much. That if you look out, out there in here, because there's a symmetry there, it's just a field of potential. And then we conceptually designate, we observe, and so forth, and then actualities arise within a field that is utterly empty of inherent nature. And remember, emptiness itself is empty of inherent nature. That's really crucial. Don't reify emptiness. Nagarjuna, I think it was said, if you reify emptiness, then you've taken the one medicine for samsara and turned it into poison. Right? Your one hope. And then, oh, you blew it, you blew that one too. Now you're really stuck. No. So, so it comes back briefly, and then we will get to the text. The Buddha's passing away. And his Shravaka disciples, who are on something of a similar bandwidth, a similar bandwidth, their collective karma, their mode of perception, their mode of conception, there's a lot of commonality there. And they are listening to the Namahaparinibbana Sutta. But there are, why would there not be? Really, if we just sit back, just, I like to reboot sometimes. Okay, just, let's, let's just start all over again. Why wouldn't there be any bodhisattvas when a Buddha is about to pass away, why would there not be any bodhisattvas in attendance? How could that happen? And there's no reference to any bodhisattvas in the Pali Canon. You mean the Buddha taught for 45 years and he didn't inspire anybody to emulate him? Not one that said, ah, this person has become a bodhisattva. This person now will set out on a long trajectory to become samyak sambuddha. Not even one, and the answer is no, there's not one reference to one person that the Buddha inspired to become a bodhisattva in the whole Pali Canon. He's the only bodhisattva, and he became, was a bodhisattva, became a Buddha. No one else. It looks to me like some editing took place. How could that happen? It's inconceivable to me that a Buddha would inspire no one to become a Buddha. Maybe some editing. Some, some things got left on the floor. So what about the bodhisattva? What about the purity of the bodhisattva's vision? What about the influence of bodhicitta? And so another bandwidth. I think it's kind of like a radio. Turn the dial and you're checking into different... You know, so you have frequencies that are coming from all, all AM, FM, and so forth, right? And they're all coming in all the time. And if you have an ordinary radio, AM, FM, or broadband, or what's it called, shortwave, and you can go then... You just turn the dial and you get something totally different. Right? I mean, it's called, it's called a radio, right? You're getting all of them, but this one picks up, your, your receiver picks up Bach, and another one picks up News, another pick, picks up Jimi Hendrix. So who was really singing in your room? Who was really speaking in your room? Bach, Jimi Hendrix, or the news commentator? So what frequency were you on? And so the bodhisattvas, I would suggest, a different frequency. They witnessed something, they saw something, they heard something different. If any of these were inherently existent, if metaphysical realism is true, then this is all false. But the whole point of the, of the second trinity with Dhamma is metaphysical realism does not, does not stand up to critical analysis. Does not. Everything is relative to perspective. And so that is our segue. That is our segue into dream yoga, and we will get to it. We're starting right now. But the notion, and again, this is exactly a preface to this chapter, that in a dream, let's say a lucid dream, can be either way though, but in a lucid dream, there you are, you're dreaming, you're in this room, and you point over to Kim. You look over there, and you know you're dreaming, but as you look at Kim, she totally appears to be there from her own side. Especially a nice, vivid, high-definition dream. You look over and say, but, but that's Kim. She's, I know I'm dreaming, but boy, does she look like she's over there. And if I walk over there and tap her on the shoulder, it's going to feel just like my shoulder. Shoulders are pretty similar. Bony people like me. Really, I'm bony there anyway. I won't, I won't touch her belly. You know. So when I reach out and touch the shoulder, it's hard, just like expected. I see her. There she is. I, I'm, I'm focused take a photo, and so forth. But you know if you're in a lucid dream, although the appearance is absolutely that way, she totally looked like she's really over there. And I walk over, and I touch her on the shoulder. And lo and behold, it felt just like she's solid. You know there's nothing there. If you're lucid, 
It's an appearance, even a tactile appearance. It's not just like a rainbow or a mirage where you can't touch it and say, oh, no, it's not real. You go poke her in the shoulder. Oh, she is real. Except for if you're lucid, you know, that's, no, that's, that's just one more appearance. And that appearance of tactile is as empty as visual. Right? Well, here's the deal. For the perfection of wisdom, the teachings on emptiness, the middle way, in the waking state, nothing has any more existence from its own side than anything you witness in a dream. The difference is greater intersubjectivity. That's it, because the dream is your own private showing, right? It's your private show. So there's really only one viewer. Other people appear to be viewing. They seem to be looking at you and looking sideways and so forth. But you know there are not multiple people in your dream. That's an empty appearance. It's only one subject. Right? So if you, if it said, for example, in Buddhist ethics, if you kill someone in a dream, deliberately kill somebody in a dream, out of malice, let's say, uh, is there any karma from that? After all, there's nobody there. And the answer is, well, your motivation and preparation for engaging in the act. First of all, identifying, oh, there's a person. I don't like that person. I want to kill him. Okay, you've made an identification, and then your you preparation, you look for your gun, get out your gun, and then there's the muji, the actual pulling the trigger, shooting right at the heart, and hitting the person with a bullet in the heart. So that's three. Recognition, preparation, enactment, and for the full karma to be accumulated, there has to be the tartuk, the culmination. And that is, somebody just got killed, at least wounded or killed. And then it's a complete karma. Recognition, preparation, enactment, and completion, right? Well, the only thing that didn't happen in the dream is the fourth one. Nobody died. But that's three out of four. That means you get karma. For better or worse, you get karma. Do something really nasty in a dream? Too bad. The intention was there. There's still karma from it. But the notion that this waking reality is dreamlike in the sense that as you point your finger out there to Kim or to the hills surrounding us with all the deep jungle, there's nothing there from its own side. That's exactly what's stated. As this one said, it's a zukuzuksa, what you're pointing your finger at, that's what doesn't exist. That which appears to be existing from its own side, well, it doesn't. In other words, this is like a magical display. But it goes both ways. When you point your finger in upon yourself as a subject, well, that's just as empty as when you point your finger outwards to the object. No subject really in here, no subject really out there. All pratita samutpada. Okay? So when Geshe Raptan, one of my primary teachers, uh, when he was meditating for his six years up in this little hut up above Dharamsala, he spent a good deal of time meditating in emptiness, and he chose the, the wooden, wooden post that was holding up his roof in the middle of this little Neanderthal hut. And really, he's, he's a superb scholar and deep, you know, really deep scholar and meditator. Just meditating on the emptiness of the pillar, this little post that was holding up his roof. And so he was telling me his whole life story, which I wrote as his biography. And he said, if I should tell, you know, because he knew people would be reading this, if I tell people what I'm experiencing here, they'll simply think I'm crazy, so let's skip it. So now we get to the text. We are on page 141, 141, the natural liberation of confusion. Experiential instructions on the transitional process of dreaming. So this is the second of the transitional processes, the first one being the transitional process of living. And so the second general topic, we continue in the text, the transitional process of dreaming entails practical instructions comparable to holding aloft a lamp in a dark room. So each of these has a metaphor. We saw the earlier one, remember it was a swallow. It would be carefully, very carefully checking where to build its nest, and then, then it really settles in. Uh, here it is holding aloft a lamp in a dark room. The darkness is very standard metaphor, is the darkness of ignorance, but it's also the darkness of delusion. And that is when we are, and the parallels are so strong, when, we're th- when, you, are, when you emerge from non-lucid, deep, dreamless sleep, and you have your first moment of a dream. They say about every 90 minutes or so is the standard cycle. You have your first moment of the dream. 
Well, in the immediately preceding moment, you weren't explicitly aware of anything, right? Because you were non-lucid, dreamless sleep. So you weren't aware of being asleep explicitly or explicitly aware of anything at all. You were really resting in avidya. Your awareness had slipped into the substrate, and the substrate is of the very nature of avidya, of not knowing, of unawareness. So out of that unawareness, you find yourself propelled, so to speak, into that first moment of the dream, uh, wherever, whatever the dreamscape may be, and whoever you may be in that dream, and in that first moment, you're coming in ignorant. Where did you come from? Unawareness. So you come in not knowing, right? And then, before very long, you're aware that something's happening, like, oh, I'm someplace, and I'm meeting people or doing things, or what have you. But you came in unknowing. That is, you didn't know how you got there. Once you were there, you didn't know where you were. But everything appears in a dream as if, as if it exists from its own side. Whether it's a lucid dream or a non-lucid dream, that's how things appear. right? So, you got in there unknowing, unintentionally, and you see everything appearing to be as if it's from its own side. So, you take it at face value. And you reify everything. And you think, well, that, that's really Kim over there. And you start a conversation or whatever. You know? And so you started out ignorant, and in the second moment you're deluded. And now you're deluded for the rest of the dream, unless you become lucid. Because you're fundamentally getting everything wrong. Out of your ignorance, you, didn't, you were not able to recognize the dream as the dream. It doesn't appear to be a dream. It appears to be everything existing from its own side. So now as you proceed in the dream, you're just an ongoing flow of unawareness what's happening, but not merely an unawareness of what's happening, but also thinking that you're not unaware, thinking that you're not ignorant because you think you've got it figured out. And that is, yeah, I, this is who I am. You have no idea that your lifespan is going to be five minutes. No clue. And so you, you can easily imagine being in a dream and going, going to a, um, an insurance, insurance office and getting, you know, spending a lot of time there dickering about your life insurance. Why not? You know? And taking and haggling and so no, that's not fair. And no, no, I want you to no, you have to include my children. And no, 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 no. And dick and how much shall I take now? Life insurance. Oh, but I also health, health insurance, health insurance. Okay. And my car and I, okay, well, well we'll spend some time here. You know. And no idea that you'll be dead before you leave the office. The dream will be over, you'll pass out. And, you know. So all like really just something to laugh about, you know. But that's it. It starts with starts in ignorance, unawareness, and then moves right into delusion. And then out of delusion, then there's very little freedom in a non-lucid dream. You're pretty much acting on momentum of past propensities, habits, habits. So if you're generally attracted to certain people or things, objects, and so forth, you're going to be attracted to them in the dream. And you'll scurry after them. All of these, I mean, it's really from outside like a joke. You know, oh, I hope she loves me. I hope she's attracted. How can I get her to be attracted to me? You know, like, you know. <laughs> Make her, you know, but you can't. You don't know. So but that's the big deal. So, so holding a, a lamp aloft in a dark room, a non-lucid dream is the dark room. That is, you don't get it. You're unaware, as in a dark room. And holding a lamp aloft means recognizing the room as a room. Recognize the dream as a dream, and then if you're holding the lamp aloft in a room, then you can explore the room. Really get to know the room, room quite well. Instead of, instead of being veiled by the darkness of ignorance and then confused with delusion, you're holding a light of lamp, so therefore the unawareness is gone, and the unawareness dispels delusion. So, that's good. So these instructions, we continue, these instructions pertain to, I mean again, update the translation, they pertain to habitual propensities. These are just habits, or the, the karmic seeds stored on, on, stored on the mind stream. These instructions pertain to habitual propensities and lead to transforming the clear light into the path. So we're seeing the clear light into the path. Clear light, that's rikpa. Right? Transforming that, inviting that, drawing that into the path, your path of you know, maturation, of awakening. So we're going to see here then instead of the, the launching pad, the context, the basis of your practice, being you, while alive as a human being, practicing in the waking state, and that was the transitional process of living. Focus on shamatha vipassana. 
Instead of that, we say, well, look, we've got another transitional process here. It happens five to seven times per night for ordinary people. It's called dreaming. That can be your launching pad. That can be your basis for gaining realization of emptiness, realizing Rikpa. You know? And some people are very gifted, in which case they may as well use it. There's an advantage to it also. And that is when we're here in the waking state, we have, as if, let's say, a certain quantity of awareness. We say, I only have so much time. Well, we also only have so much awareness. We can't give, let's say, Emerson our full attention. I can't give Emerson my full attention, give you all the attention to deserve, and simultaneously give Dakmar all the attention she deserves. Can't do it. I can go back and forth, or I can ignore Dakmar entirely and give you all, or I can go give 50-50-50, but I just, there's just only so much we can give. So in the waking state, then, the ordinary waking state, then this capital, this like the river, the water of, of stream of awareness, is flowing out into six tributaries. Right? Out to the visual, out to the auditory, the olfactory, gustatory, tactile, and the mental. So it's really quite more like a delta of flowing out into all these directions. There's no, not a whole lot for any one of them. Because a lot of it is used up. I, oh, but I gave, that over to the, I gave that over to the visual. Or, oh, I was really tactile at that time. Whatever. Right? Whereas when you're dreaming, when you're dreaming, your five physical senses are dormant. They're, they're, they're damned. They're, I don't mean badly. They're just blocked. You know? It's not flowing through there. You're not aware of the, the colors in your room. Your eyes, eyes are closed for one thing, but unless it's a really loud noise, that's not really penetrating in. Uh, there's nuance that I won't go into right now. But what's your posture in bed? Are you lying on your side, your belly, and so forth? You don't know. You don't know when you're dreaming. You don't know at all. So which means that all of the flow, the fluid, the, the juice of your awareness is all flowing into one domain, which means it's a kind of samadhi, which of course is why. I'm just inferring this, but I think it has to be right. This is why when you're dreaming, it looks so real. You could remember your dream, and you can remember it extremely vividly. When you wake up, you remember that it was a really vivid dream? Good. Have it all over. Do it. Replay. While you're awake, replay the dream. No way, you get this incredibly faint, vague, little facsimile, but it's not even remotely the clarity, the precision, the high definition, the dream itself, right? Well, that's because there's so much competition. You're trying to do something in the mental realm, but so much of the water of your awareness is flowing to the visual, tactile, and so forth and so on. So one can see there could be a real advantage here. You're already in a kind of samadhi. This is what happens when you achieve shamatha. All the flow of your awareness goes into the mental. So if you want to visualize something, adepts who have achieved shamatha said, oh, when you visualize, like Buddha Shakyamuni, when you, when you achieve shamatha, it's about the same as seeing it with your eyes. Or about the same as having a really, really vivid dream in which the Buddha shows up. Extremely vivid, right down to eyelashes, irises, pupils, and so forth. <coughs> so one can see already that would be a good reason if you can make use of dreams. Then you're bringing a lot of samadhi power into just by the fact that you are dreaming, and it's a subtler mode of awareness. Generally speaking, within one triad, waking, waking consciousness is coarse. Dreaming consciousness is subtle. Deep sleep consciousness, very subtle. That's one triad. So we're not going to rikpa here, but just within our ordinary consciousness that we experience on a 24-hour basis. Waking, coarse. Dreaming, subtle. Deep sleep, very subtle. Which means that if you can become really very lucid in dreamless sleep, well, then you might actually be able to take the clear light as your path. So this is pretty heavy-duty stuff here. Let's continue. In this topic, there are three parts. Daytime instructions on the illusory body and the natural liberation of appearances. Nighttime instructions on dreaming and the natural liberation of confusion. And concluding instructions on the clear light and the natural liberation of delusion. So it looks like this is going to be a really great chapter. Now, a number of you have spoken to me in, the, in our one-on-one -on -one meetings that um, some of you have very poor dream recall, or you've tried, haven't really have very, very sporadic or you know, extremely rare lucid dreams, uh, and so forth, and feeling, I'm just, I'm just not one of those gifted people. Some people are, some people are not. That's just the breaks. Um, but you may be approaching this chapter now that we're halfway through the retreat and think, well, now we're going to an area where I'm just going to fail. 
there may, people, some people are having a lot of lucid dreams here, but not everybody. So you may feel a little bit left out, like, oh, gosh, this is for the other people, but not me, because I have hardly any dream recall and never had a lucid dream, or I had one ten years ago, or what have you. I'd like you to manage the thought. You don't need to think that way. And without pretending or my, you know, telling you you are something you are not. I don't do that. Why? No advantage to me or you. What I'm saying here is that if you feel, and anybody here, if you are very gifted, some people have frequent lucid dreams, and then some people don't, either way, there is an area where you get, there is a domain of this practice where you can definitely get traction. Like a Jeep trying to go up a steep hill, it gets muddy, but if it's in four-wheel drive and it has you know, good knobbly tires, then even if it's steep and it's slippery, it will get traction and it will make its way up the hill. right? And where I'm, what I'm talking about is daytime. Daytime dream yoga. Whether or not you have good dream recall, whether, whether you have a single lucid dream in the next four weeks, I have to tell you, really honestly, I don't really care that much. Now, if you report a lucid dream, I'm going to be happy. Because you're going to be happy. You know, that's why I'm happy. I mean, it's cool. They're fun. They're interesting. They're meaningful. Then you can really do marvelous things with them. But if you come in for the next four weeks, and at the end you say, I didn't have one single lucid dream, my question is, yeah, but what did you have? What did you have? What were you practicing? Never mind what you weren't practicing. You were not practicing all kinds of things. You weren't practicing tumo either. You didn't achieve tumo. You didn't achieve pa and so forth and so on. But of the teachings here, you're going to find some traction, and it's in the waking state. Okay? And if that's all that happens, if you have no success at nighttime dream yoga, but for the next four weeks, you really give it your best shot of daytime dream yoga practice, that can be tremendously transformative, really transformative, meaningful, deep, integrative, drawing in your understanding of emptiness teachings, perfection of wisdom, and so forth. It can be a terrific success. So for the dream yoga, you can have an immensely successful, enriching, transformative, beneficial practice and not have one lucid dream. Okay? It's the way it is. So, instructions on the illusory body. Let's just jump right in. There are, here there are two parts, the, the impure illusory body and the pure illusory body. So first of all, we have just this lovely preparation. And this is good to do for pretty much any practice. In a solitary place, so you all have your, your own private accommodations, that's what we're here for. Sit on a comfortable cushion, you know what that means, and cultivate bodhicitta, thinking, may all sentient beings throughout space achieve perfect Buddhahood. For that purpose I shall meditate on the natural liberation of appearances through the instructions on the illusory body. Then offer supplications, so you may call Padmasambhava, your guru, Samantabhadra, your object of refuge, whoever that is, indivisible. If you're practicing Vajrayana, then by all means, indivisible from your Lama. So visualize the Yidam, the Buddha, your Lama, same nature. Offer supplications, a, a prayerful request. Bless me that I may practice the illusory body. Bless me that I may realize the illusion-like samadhi. So call for a fountain of blessings. Inspiration, blessings, transformative. The, the term blessing Tibetan jin lap. Jin means something given. Lap means a vibration or a wave. Okay? It is something that you do receive. And it can be received in many ways. Many people with Gyawakamapa, for example, Dujum Rinpoche, Dingo Kinsidipachius, Holnendis Dalai Lama, and many other lamas, just being in their... Oh, Kandola, for example. No difference in gender. Kando, uh, just in Kandola Rinpoche. I've been with her once. I'm looking forward to the next time. Remarkable teacher. A lama, through a lama. Uh, so if it's, uh, or, and of course, Buddhists have no monopoly here, I won't elaborate, but one can be a, have a blessing from another person just by being in the presence of that person. Right? You can have a blessing by receiving a card or an email. You may get blessing. Or having a conversation, receiving teachings, a blessing. And what that means is, a blessing is something you receive that has the power to transform. That's it right there. You receive a blessing and you see, you didn't just get a data input, an information download. That's what you can get from the internet. Read a book. You know, no problem. Maybe they'll actually one day be able to infuse it right into your brain directly. I don't know. But blessing is something that's not tangible. It's not just data. It's something you receive. And I think it's a good translation, blessing. But in receiving it, you find yourself transformed. So Paul Ekman, for example, his, and it's very public, 
but his meeting with the Dalai Lama back in the year 2000, where during one of the breaks, His Holiness just took Paul's hand in his, his own as they spoke for about five minutes. And I was translating. I can't remember a word they said. And I'm not sure Paul can either. Maybe he can. But His Holiness just held his hand for these, you know, it was five, ten minute break before the next session began. And Paul was sitting, we were both sitting on the ground, His Holiness on his little easy chair there. And Paul said, this really smart, secular, accomplished scientist, very critical in the best possible sense of the term, he said afterwards, I've never experienced anything like that. And if anybody told me, I would have said that's complete baloney. And he said, I don't know what words to choose, but here I'll try. It was an infusion of pure goodness. That was his words. This is not a ushy-gushy kind of marshmallow kind of guy. If you wanted another man on Mount Rushmore, his face would be fit in right well, you know, carved out of granite. It's very strong, very, very strong. But it, and then he got so interested in scientists, like, what was that? Because that I've never experienced before, and it was real. Nobody can, they can understand it or not, but that was real. And it had a deep, profound, lasting effect on him. I won't go into all the details, too much of a tangent, but a really, really good effect that blew him away. So he then, as a scientist, wanted to see if anybody else was experienced. And he asked the Dalai Lama, could you do that again? We'd like to study it scientifically. And his holiness said, what? What? <laughs> what? Who, me? Just holding your hand. You know, it's a big deal. <laughs> so no, there was no scientific study. It's not like blessing on, blessing on demand. Give me five minutes, 10,000 watts, please. It doesn't work that way. But it's real. Anybody's received it, you know it's real. This friend of mine who, who watched the crown ceremony with Karmapa, well, you, you can't persuade him that he didn't receive blessing. Doesn't matter what you say. Doesn't matter how atheistic or materialistic are. Doesn't matter what you experience is what you experience, and that's blessing. So, insofar as especially in Vajrayana, the more that you can really connect with the Yidam, the Yidam, your chosen deity, the Buddha, the Guru, the Yalama, and receive blessing, then that really is an absolutely crucial element, indispensable element. That's why there's no such thing as secular Dzogchen. Secular mindfulness, sure, why not? Secular and four immeasurables, why not? You don't have to be religious in any sense of the term. Shamatha, can you do it secularly? Yeah, to some extent, sure, why not? But Dzogchen, no way. Dream yoga, not dream yoga. Lucid dreaming, secular, no problem. Dream yoga, oh, no, no. Now this is, this is Mahayana, Vajrayana. Then, blessing. There's no way to secularize this and still have it at the end. Right? You can take a body and, and, and eviscerate it, take all the guts out, but then it's no longer a body, it's a corpse. Okay. So, Bless me that I re- may realize the, illus- the illusion-like samadhi. And then we continue on page 142. Gautam commentary is definitely worth reading. I'm just giving the root text. It is like this. Boy, that catches the attention. It is like this, Padmasambhava says. And it's stunning, his first statement. All phenomena are non-existent. Whoa. But they appear to exist and are established as various things, like white and red. That's like a lion's roar. It's thunderous, but it's also quite astonishing, shocking, like, what? I mean, you just said phenomena. Phenomena means something that exists, like, you know, exists. And then you say phenomena are non-existent. But they appear to exist. So there's a phrase, this is now Dzogchen. This is Dzogchen context. You'll never, I don't think you'll ever find that in any Galupa text. All phenomena are non-existent? No way. We had those whole criteria, you remember? How do you determine whether something exists or not? Have you perceived it? Is it repudiated by some other perception? That whole cycle of checking, rechecking, William James, the same thing. Okay, yes, is Gache there? Of course we're speaking in a relative context. But relatively speaking, here in Phuket, is Gache present or not? I check, nobody's refuted me. Yes, Gache's there. She's there. She's there. Yes, not inherently, but she's there. Conventionally, relatively, she's there. She has causal efficacy. Look, she's smiling. That makes me happy. His Holiness has commented. I love tangents. Catch you unaware. But His Holiness, if you see, um, if you ever see him teach, he's making a lot of eye contact with people. Always. If there's 10,000 people, he's finding people to make contact with. And then you, if you get it, like, well, I just got zapped. 
I just got sapped. It's only just looked at me, you know? And when he looks, almost certainly, I can't get it every time. But if he looks, makes eye contact, he's going to smile. You know, he's going to smile. It happens all the time, all the time. He'll look, and it's at that beaming smile. I'm not going to try to emulate it. It would be like, oh, please, Alan, don't. <laughs> you know? But uh, that beaming smile, it's incredible warmth and kindness. And you kind of like, oh, that was my blessing. <gasps> I'm not kidding, you know. I mean, that's my experience. But he commented, when I'm, when I'm, whether I'm just walking or teaching, what have you, when I gaze at someone and I smile, if they don't smile back, then he said, I feel a little bit disappointed. <laughs> like, oh, they won't look. Or they look right back and they're just staring like mashed potatoes. Oh, okay. Little disappointment. You didn't ruin his day, but a moment that could have been filled with light. The light only came one way. So even the Dalai Lama can be a bit disappointed if you don't make that contact, that eye-to-eye contact. Even he. So that's nice, that we make eye-to-eye contact with each other. Not all the time, but often enough. Right? So, where were we? All phenomena non-existent. Okay, that's Dzogchen. That's Nyingma. You never find that in Galupa. The phrase you find ever so often in Nyingma, generally, Dzogchen specifically, Nang Lama Dupa, in Tibetan, Nang Lama Dupa. Nang is, appears. La here means but, Madupa, not established. It's not established. Established means that I can ascertain it, determine it. It's, it's, it's there. It's established. Right? Got it. Okay, oh, I got it. Now I got it. That's established. Or they'll even say, Nangla, Madupa is most common, but Nangla Mepa, sometimes they'll say, it appears, but it's non-existent. It appears, but it's non-existent. This is not the perspective of a sentient being. Not the perspective, it, that is, with Gache, for example, she's, she's a person, she had a mother, father. If you ask her, do you remember when you were a child? She'd probably say, yeah, I do. She won't, she won't say, oh, oh no, I, I must be a princess. You know, I must be, you know, she probably will remember her childhood. Most people do, right? So, and then she has parents and grandparents and going all the way back, who knows how far. And so, relatively speaking, within this cognitive frame of reference, she is there. But that's the whole point. What we're going to see here in these Dzogchen teachings on Dream Yoga, where eventually we're going to hear the statement, this right now. Do a state check. Go ahead. Pull your nose. Okay, I'm looking. I don't see any Pinocchio noses coming. Okay, so we're not dreaming, right? Or you want to jump? We don't need to jump. You're not. Gonna, you're going to come crashing down. I'm going to make a big projection. Nobody's going to float. So in other words, we've done the state check. That's lucid dreaming state check. We're not asleep. We're not dreaming. This is the waking state, right? Well, once you've made your state check, and you're practicing not lucid dreaming but dream yoga, you've made your state check. And you know that you're now not dreaming, you are awake. In that context, then you say, this is a dream. And you're not brainwashing yourself, you're not deluding yourself, you're not pretending. This is a dream. But it's like the comment to Camille yesterday. There is a perspective from which this right now, after you've pulled your nose and it didn't get longer, there is a perspective from which it is true to say, this Dream. Like said so many years ago. This dream. Like, it's better with no is, isn't it? A bit punchier. More like pe. This dream. And that's what we're doing. We're trying to punch a hole. Punch through or cut through. Punch through this embeddedness within the fabric of waking experience to a deeper perspective, of course, the perspective of Rigpa perspective from which this indeed is all illusory. And from the perspective of Rigpa, this doesn't exist. From that perspective, this ordinary, this is impure vision. This is sentient beings with mental afflictions and snakes and scorpions and creepy crawly things and disease, aging, sickness and death, samsara. Right? That's where we are from this perspective. But from Rigpa's perspective, oh, that doesn't exist. Pure vision. Taknyam, equal purity. 
no difference between samsara and nirvana. What we're seeing here doesn't exist from Rikra's perspective. From our, yeah. But that's the point. We're punching through to another perspective for which this appears, yeah, but it doesn't exist. As if you've just had a really rotten nightmare and you wake from it and then you look back upon your memories of the nightmare and say, boy, I have the memories, but that didn't happen. Nobody was chasing after me with a knife. Nobody, whatever the dream was, oh, that appeared, I can still remember it, but that doesn't exist. Just the appearances, but there's nothing behind it. That whole, all the situation I experienced didn't exist, never existed. It was only when I was deluded that I thought it did, but now that I'm awake, it never existed. Something like that. So he starts out with a boom, doesn't he? All phenomena are non-existent. That's enough to chew on tonight. And then you can chew on your dinner. See you tomorrow morning. Enjoy your night.